and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. We made it to another week. Yes, we did. <laughs> you know, we've been going over the various uh, major cases that came at the end of the Supreme Court term. And so far, we've discussed the Dobbs case, uh, the abortion case in depth. We've discussed the Bruin case, which is the uh, gun case from New York. And in our last episode, we discussed the Carson case on uh, religious uh, equality and the Establishment Clause, etc. And, and free exercise and vouchers. Mm-hmm, correct. Today, we're going to continue with, there are two, really two more uh, substan- sub- substantial cases that we want to discuss. One of them is the Kennedy case, having to do with the football coach that's praying at the 50-yard line after the football games in high school. And the other is the West Virginia case, uh, which had to do with um, the EPA and climate change. That latter case is largely a statutory construction case, which may not entirely be you know, our wheelhouse or specifically Akil's wheelhouse, but it does raise some interesting questions as we are going to discuss it. And it's an important case from a policy point of view, which again brings up the distinction that I uh, that we discussed in the last episode that everyone has been saying, and I want to repeat it so that you have a little perspective when you think about the cases, uh, audience. Um, you know, that the in the media, this uh, group of cases at the end of the year has been treated as an earthquake of sorts, um, largely because of their policy implications. In other words, uh, getting rid of uh, the national, the constitutional right to, to abortion, uh, having impact on gun rights, impacts on re- religious equality, um, prayer in schools, things like that. And finally, in the case of the West Virginia case, climate change, which is obviously a, a major issue. Um, okay. But from our point of view, we've said, well, when we actually look at some of these cases, the impact on the law going forward uh, from a policy point of view may not be as large as what the media has said. And then we've gone into explanations as to why. But they, they have been important in terms of questions of constitutional method, which you know might seem trivial, but then we've you know, given some examples of why that can really matter. And And in abortion, just so we're clear, we also said the impact, the policy impact could be even bigger than what some in the media initially um, uh, understood because uh, in the Dobbs case, there's the possibility of a a nationwide ban on abortion and not just bans in individual states. So the policy implications in certain respects are broader, maybe in other respects are narrow. But in addition, we need to think about what these cases mean for how we think about constitutional law more generally, how you do constitutional law, what counts as a good constitutional argument and what doesn't, what the relationship is between text history and structure, i.e. originalism on the one hand, and precedent, for example, on the other. Those are big, big questions of constitutional method, not limited to the particular substantive issues on the docket this last term. And this also goes to questions of the legitimacy of the court. People say, oh, the, the court is, is acting in an illegitimate manner. And I think if, if the, the court may act legitimately but have very adverse policy uh, implications to what they do, or they may act illegitimately in that sense. And so we've been examining those questions as well. And I think that the Kennedy case that we're going to be talking about today is interesting on this sort of dichotomy that we've brought up between policy and and constitutional method, because it's a very fact-specific case. You know, Akil and I were talking about this case. (laughs) We talked for hours um, about it, and we raised a a variety of questions uh, among ourselves. We said, well, if these are the facts, then this is the answer. If these are the facts, then this is the answer. And it really comes down to what the facts are in the case, or even perhaps a little further, it comes down to what the court thinks the facts are in the case. Because the, the, uh, the dissent and the majority have their own ideas of what the facts are in the case also. And that, and that affects how they, how they look at it. 
Uh, and Andy, on that, I'll just tell one war story. I, I don't litigate before the Supreme Court as a general proposition. I've been involved in a few amicus briefs over the years. From time to time, I'm cited by the justices, but not because I am actually pushing this article or that book, but just because the litigants and the amici uh, bring the scholarship to the court's attention. But one case in which I was a consultant, a case called Missouri versus Siebert, and I was a consultant for the state of Missouri, involved a claim that the Missouri had failed to Mirandize a suspect in a certain uh, situation. And the case was litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court on this, you know, the premise that the cops had actually failed to Mirandize. Missouri's argument, and I believed it, was that it was an emergency situation. It was literally an unfolding serial murder in progress. A woman who had uh, uh, killed one foster child, I think, and uh, was targeting two others or something like that, and was in a hospital or something, but the, the, the cops didn't even know, you know where the other children were and they were at risk. And, and so we, we took the position that in that, that unfolding emergency situation, Miranda wasn't required, and we thought that's what the cases said and that's what common sense dictated. We ended up losing 5-4. Here's, though, the point. In fact, we learned in the middle of the litigation that the cops did Mirandize, and and the whole case, you know, was under a premise that the cops were manipulating the system and and acting in bad faith and all the rest, and, and that's how the case actually was decided, but that's not, in fact, what happened. But by the time we realized that that's not what was happened, the record had been established by findings of fact by lower courts, so it got litigated on a whole set of factual premises that actually were not true. But the case stands for what it stands for, which is assuming this set of facts, you know, here's the the, the legal result. But the court's actual analysis was based on a set of factual premises about failure to Mirandize and, and, and purposeful police misconduct that turned out not to have been true at all, but we discovered it too late um, in the litigation. And I think that a lot of those things uh, can apply to this case, because in this case we have um, a high school coach, actually an assistant coach, I believe, um, of a football team, and the coach conducted prayers after the game, after football games, uh, in the center of the field over a period of time. Uh, So for a number of years, I believe. And what he would do is he would would have the players pray with him. Or So there was a time when they had prayers out loud, um, and then the coach was told that he shouldn't be doing that. So then he switched to... Having prayer, having silent prayers again with with the uh, with the other either quiet prayers or silent prayers with some of his students. Sometimes players from the other team would would join in. Then there was a period of time when he was praying by himself. Um, so all the, there were different things going on at different times. Furthermore, the coach had certain obligations under school policy. For example, the he was informed that one of his responsibilities was to supervise the students, the players, um, up to the conclusion of all of the events that had to do with the game. So basically, after the game, he was still supposed to be supervising the students, but then he went off to pray, uh, and so he was told that that was, you know, that was something he shouldn't be doing because he had this responsibility to supervise the students. And in fact, he had supervised the students for long periods of, uh, for, for a number of years and then he would only go back and pray after that. And then that changed. So the point is here that a lot of things changed over time. It's very much of a moving target. And depending yes. on how you think of, of what was going on, you may react uh, viscerally and, and very differently based on the facts. So from my point of view, I was very concerned with the coercive effect of, the, of a coach um, inviting players to join in a prayer uh, after the game. Did they really have the right to refuse? I mean, did they feel that they maybe they had the right to, but you know, were, were they going to suffer consequences that they shouldn't have been subjected to um, because the coach has, is an authority, you know, authority figure? And I would venture to say that there's no one in a high school that's more of an authority figure than a coach is to his players. 
and particularly in football, I think, which um, in certain parts of the country. So you have, we know that for a long time it hasn't been okay for teachers to lead prayers in schools. So how can it be okay for a coach to lead a prayer uh, in, in a school? Um, so, so there's so many working, you know, moving parts here. You're absolutely right, Andy. And we're proud of this podcast because we explore the complexities and we're not always on one side of the legal or political spectrum. And, um, and Andy and I don't always agree about everything. Um, and we bring people on the podcast, sometimes from the left, sometimes from the right. And, oh, there's so many complexities going on here. Let's identify some of them. Okay, legally, you've got both establishment clause concerns, because uh, he's a government official who's praying, you know, in government uniform in a government in a you know in a school space on the fifty yard line, but also free exercise concerns because even though from one point of view he is the government, the man, he's also a human being, so and so Kennedy, who's got rights um, against the government, which is trying to shut him down in certain ways. So free exercise and establishment. Is he, a, is he the government establishment or is he just, you know, uh, Joe Schmo, a uh, coach with rights against the government? He does different things at different times. How to think about, you know, whether there really is coercion or not vis-a-vis his own players. And then it's complicated because sometimes some of the people who are joining in at different points um, in this saga, in his prayers, are people from the other team actually. Um, and there's not so much coercion, you see, if, if, if they're joining in or people from the stands. And I'm not sure that there's that much coercion there. So the, the coercion, how to think about all of its elements. Yes, it's the school, but it's not in a classroom. Does that make a difference? Because uh, we have certain public professions of, of religion and religiosity in the public space more generally, but we have stricter rules about schools and classrooms. For example, presidents saying, so help me God, or criers saying, God save this honorable court, but we have stricter rules in the classroom. That's Abington and Engel versus Shemp and Engel versus Vitality, Battalion and what we talked about before. But this isn't quite the classroom, okay? Um, people aren't obliged by state law to, to, to students to actually be in attendance here. On the other hand, it's on school grounds and, and you're dealing with impressionable youngsters. So how to think about those issues? How far back do you, and this is a deep jurisprudential question, even if in isolation, his actions in the most recent episode, even if you thought in isolation they were permissible, how um, relevant is it that in previous iterations he really did cr- cross the line? Does it matter, in effect, if you've been guilty of 10 offsides before in the next down? You know, uh, Are you allowed to, to, to line up right at the scrimmage line, or do you have to be five yards back? How much prophylaxis do you want because he may have violated um, uh, principal uh, rights before. And, and that's going to connect to, is he the government or is he an individual for reasons that we'll, we'll talk about? Is it a silence or not? So at least three possibilities, Andy, you identified. Okay, was it a perfectly silent prayer? Okay, if so, we don't even know what he's saying, who, to whom he's praying or how. Is it a quiet prayer? When, when she's saying something out loud, but, but people can't generally hear him, are the others, the, the students, are they actually silent or, or not? Because we, we talked about this in our last episode, because if, if they are actually expected to speak out loud, oh, well, then their anonymity is breached. People can tell who's praying and who's not and what they're praying and what they're saying and you know, who's reciting a Jewish prayer versus a Buddhist prayer versus no prayer at all. So are they merely witnessing his prayer which is one thing, and it's very visible, or they actually are, are they themselves involved in a prayer ceremony, which is ever so slightly different than merely witnessing someone else's prayer. There's a lot of debate. Was this public or not? You know, um, well, he's on the 50-yard line at a football game, but if he's not saying anything and if the others aren't saying anything out loud, does that make it more private? All sorts of complexities. Those are the things we're going to explore together in our discussion. Well, let's start with some of the things that you said just at the end. Um, So he's on the 50-yard line. 
and you're you're asking, well, is he is he speaking up or isn't he? And of course, we know from our last podcast that you consider moments of silence, you know, very different from uh, prayer, and uh, you know, out you know, prayer out loud prayer. But does the law consider it different? I mean, you, there's well, a case that you disagree with on this, correct? Yes, Wallace versus Jaffrey frowns on even moments of silence. And I think that goes too far. I'm completely on board with Engel versus Vitali and Abington versus Shemp. And one of the reasons I am is, oh, the coercive elements of that and the forcing people to stand up and stand out. Here are all the bad things in that. The government is either itself picking the prayer, the government, the school, the state as such, is either picking a scripture, the Lord's Prayer or Deuteronomy or Exodus or whatever, the Beatitudes, picking some scriptural passage, you know, Micah 6, 8, or maybe even worse, and it could be from a Buddhist tradition or Hindu or Protestant or Catholic or Jewish or whatever. It's either picking some well-known religious scripture or it's coming up with its own prayer, writing its own, which is, you know, maybe even worse in, in certain respects, okay? And it's state as such. And people are asked to participate in the thing, and if they don't want to, oh, they're allowed to opt out, but everyone sees who's walking out. It's the Jewish boy. It's, the, um, it's Walter Dellinger, the, the little Catholic boy. That's what we talked about last time. That was easy. This one's harder in certain respects because, oh, from a certain point of view, the state is actually trying to shut him down. You know, he's very much against the government. He's one guy, and he wants to... What if he had merely been not the coach, but the quarterback of the football team wanting to pray on the 50-yard line? Who has some social standing on, on, on the team, okay? But he has some social standing, but he's not the state, okay? Yes. By virtue of being so the that, quarterback, so, so, he's not so, the state. So good. Now we're, we're making progress, okay? Teachers can't lead prayer. Students are allowed to pray. Maybe even the quarterback is allowed to pray on the 50-yard line. And maybe even, you know, if I'm a wide receiver, if, if, if my quarterback, you know, is praying there, maybe I want to be with him because, I, you know, I want him to throw me a pass next time I'm open. So, uh, but, so but that raises a complaint. But, oh, but you say, oh, but he's not the government. This is complicated because he's at one and the same time. He is the government and he's someone who has arguably rights against the government. Okay, so that, that's one complexity. But Abington and Engel, in my view, were easy because the government as such was privileging certain religious doctrines and dogma and saying that these religions are in, other religions are out, that these are the good ones, um, everyone else is an outsider, um, not really an equal citizen. Oh, and we'll let you opt out. Akhil Amar, Andy Lipka, whatever, Walter Dellinger, but you're going to have to stand up and stand up because this is all out loud prayer. By the way, a mere opt-out suffices. And let's just talk about this for a moment when it comes to the Pledge of Allegiance. We talked earlier on many occasions about West Virginia versus Barnett in 1943, which overruled the Gobitis case from a couple of years before. So we talked about it as Presence can be overruled when they're egregiously wrong, even if nothing has changed in between except maybe court personnel, which I said, fine, court personnel, that's, that's a permissible basis. People are allowed to change their own minds. You're also allowed to have new justices who have different views. Barnett was right. It's a landmark. It's the classic, but it's about just overruling an egregiously wrong case. Here's what it also is about. Compelled government speech. A government-compelled speech and is saying you can't force kids to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in a public school. The kids were allowed to opt out. And then actually, in that case, many of them were opting out for religious reasons. They were Jehovah's Witnesses who thought that a pledge was a kind of swearing of a false oath to someone other than the, the Lord, their God. Okay, but it was sufficient, the court said. These kids were actually punished for not engaged in a flag salute or a pledge. Okay. But it was sufficient to, that they could opt out. That, but they were going to have to stand up and stand out. Why was that okay? Oh, that wasn't a prayer. It was just a flag salute. Okay, well, the pledge back then just said one nation indivisible, you know, with liberty and justice for all. In the 1950s, the pledge was modified. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, why isn't the pledge more like a prayer and post 
Engel and Abington, 1962-63, why are we allowed to have teacher in the classroom lead the pledge at all? Why isn't this like a prayer? An opt-out isn't even good enough because it's not good enough when it comes to the Lord's Prayer in Abington and and Engel or a New York Regent's Prayer. And that's what a litigant named Michael Newdow raised. He he thought the pledge itself was unconstitutional. I once gave a talk at the Library of Congress, and actually this guy raises his hand at the back at the end of my lecture, and it's Michael Newdow, actually, and I recognize him, and uh, so that was very interesting. The Ninth Circuit which is often way out there. It's the same circuit as involved in the Kennedy case, and that's not irrelevant. The Supreme Court loves to smack down on the Ninth Circuit, which sometimes goes too far. And the, the Ninth Circuit actually at one point held the Pledge of Allegiance unconstitutional. The Supreme Court reversed them. What's the argument? What are you talking about? Well, how can that be? It says under God, and this is, why isn't this covered obviously by Abington and Engel? Here's, I think, the best argument. The court didn't quite make this. They said, oh, well, it's kind of, you know, customary and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and why are we allowed to have God say this honorable court and, and in God we trust on the coins and president saying, so help me God and all the rest. Well, when it came to, and you could say, well, we're, but we're stricter in public schools because of peer pressure and coercion. That's what Abington and Engel are all about. That's what you were talking about as a public school kid. I said, I agree with you. I know how that feels as a public school kid who's you know, part of a, you know, a, a minority community. So we're stricter in the public schools. So I repeat, why are we even allowing the pledge even with the opt-out? Here's the best argument. After the words under God have been added in the 1950s, which wasn't the case when Barnett was decided in 1943. And by the way, the before, you, before you give us that argument, it's interesting that, that, that the bill in Congress passed 99 to 0 to add un, under God to the, to the And another bill smacking down the Ninth Circuit by name in this case that this was outrageous, and the Constitution itself says in the year of our Lord. Now, in fact... The Constitution itself doesn't say in the year of our Lord. And if you want the details about how it doesn't say in the year of our Lord, oh, you'll have to read one of my books, um, America's Unwritten Constitution, Chapter 2. I give you all the details about the year of our Lord, uh, words that technically, I say, weren't ratified. They were slightly outside the Constitution. They were part of the frame, but not the canvas. Okay, so yeah, every so often, Andy, in this podcast, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about the scholarship that underlies the podcast, because I've actually thought about a lot of these issues over a, a long time. So back to the question. So why then did Michael Newdow lose? Because um, why isn't obviously the pledge a kind of a compulsory, you know, religious exercise now that the words under God have been added? I think the best argument is, strictly speaking, the pledge is not a prayer. It's not a religious event as such. And the words under God are best understood as an historical reference, not to anything scriptural, but it's actually a reference to the Gettysburg Address, in which Abraham Lincoln closes by saying, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. And it's in a clause about the indivisibility of the union in the pledge, and that one nation, comma, under God, comma, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, is actually a reference to, an historical reference to Lincoln. We're pledging allegiance to Lincoln's vision of the Republic, and it's not quite religious as such. It's a point about American history and the Gettysburg Address and Abraham Lincoln. And it's not a prayer as such. The way the Lord's Prayer is a prayer, and the way the New York Regent's Prayer was a prayer, and those were religious ceremonies as such. Wow, what a paper-thin distinction. Welcome to law. And sometimes law turns on these very slender distinctions. So um, is that kind of an ex post facto uh, explanation? I mean, if you look at the congressional debate on this, was this discussed, you know, at the time when, they, when this bill, you know, was proposed or when, when it was in committee or was it part of the legislative history? We've, off, we've talked a lot about precedents and whether precedents are right or wrong or egregiously wrong. And I've often said a precedent might be right, even though it doesn't give the best reasons. But I take precedent seriously. 
I believe at the end of the day, text history and structure trumps precedent, but because uh, I'm a certain kind of originalist. But I, as an originalist, take precedent seriously. And one of the things I'm going to do three times before I toss a precedent overboard is to ask whether, even if it didn't make the best argument, whether there was a good argument that could be made for its result. And you remember I said, oh, Roe on its facts this was actually rightly decided because it was about a Texas law that no woman had ever voted for. Everything else in the opinion you know, is, is problematic, but, but actually on its facts it might be right. And why was that relevant? Because you remember I said, I'm really nervous about old laws springing back to life in places like Wisconsin. And, and in the Dobbs deal episode, I suggested that you know, an alternative opinion could have really, from the liberal side, could have really focused on things like that and unfortunately didn't. So here you see again, I'm trying to think seriously about the precedents, and even if a precedent doesn't give the best argument, I'll try to give you what I think the best argument is for, for that result, especially now it's an opinion of the court that needs to be taken seriously. So... We have different rules in schools. That's what we've just begun to talk about. And I think that's not silly because there's more of a concern about coercion and peer pressure in schools. What did I say originalism was good at in the episode on Bruin? Telling you what the big picture idea is, what clearly is the idea and what clearly isn't the idea. Now, fleshing that all out in a complicated world is very different than the founders. I don't think originalism is going to be very helpful on that. That's in part going to be, depend on you, the judge's vision of your current society. So here's what I said. I said the big idea is religious equality. It's not separation. It's religious equality. And we're going to come back to that, I think, when we come back to some, a little bit more discussion of Carson. Originalism tells you what the big idea is. Um, and if it's equality and liberty... And if it's in part a, a liberty that no one should be coerced into professing a religious set of tenets that she doesn't believe in, and if it's also about equality, not um, subjecting people to stigma just because they happen to be public stigma, government-created stigma because they happen to be a member of a minority religion, oh, I'm going to be especially sensitive to some of those things in public school where there is a lot of stigma and peer pressure on people who, who stand out. And that's why I liked moments of silence because they don't create that kind of stigma and peer pressure because no one knows what you're thinking. And I, so Abington was right and Engel was right. I'll give you another case that I think was clearly right. I wrote about this in a book called The Law of the Land. Um, I wrote a whole chapter about Anthony Kennedy's jurisprudence. And the case is Lee versus Weissman. And Lee was a harder case from a certain point of view. What made it a harder case? It was about a prayer on school grounds. But here's what was slightly harder. It wasn't in the classroom. It wasn't where the law obliged people to actually be in attendance, a truancy laws and the rest. You know, because it's a one-two punch. They force you to be in the classroom, and then they force you to, you know, watch the ceremony and either stand up. They let you, you know, stand up and stand out, but they force you to be in the room in the first place. And wow, okay. Well, this was technically, and and it's being led by the teacher, who is this very important authority figure, like a coach. Okay, and there's a lot of peer pressure and stigma. Ingle and Abington were clearly right, and by the way, they smashed precedent and practice to the contrary. They were revolutionary in, the, in their time. They were just revolutions on the left rather than on the right. They were the Warren Court kicking into high gear and saying, you know, the, the rules are different because we're taking the Constitution seriously. That's the same thing Dobbs and Bruin are, are actually saying, you see, but on the right and not on, on the left. Okay, so in Lee versus Weissman, it's under the, in the Rehnquist court era. It's a five to four opinion by one of my heroes, Anthony Kennedy, one of my dear friends. Um, and um, it's at a school. Here's the difference. It's not in the classroom. And it's technically at an event that no student is required to attend. It's a commencement. Okay? And it's about actually an invocation, a prayer not by the teacher, but they, they actually pick a religious person. In that case, it was a rabbi, and they, they would rotate. So it was a prayer at a... And, and, and not just under God, a prayer. 
Okay, and he actually used language from Micah six eight about what the Lord, O oh God, requires of you to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Technically, the students didn't have to be there for graduation, but Kennedy says correctly, in my view, and there's a screechy dissent over the top by Antonin Scalia. It's the same Kennedy versus Scalia as talked about in Planned Parenthood versus Casey when we talked about the Tawny passage, the Roger Tawny passage. Justice Scalia says, you don't, there's no requirement that you attend your commencement. You know, there's, there's no truancy law here. And Kennedy says, get real. Who would want to miss their commencement? It's a big thing to miss. And, and like, I went to high school. I'm with him. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to miss my commencement, be there all with my, my, my friends. It's a very special moment in, in, in most people's lives. You know, maybe not exactly up there with your, your wedding or your bar mitzvah, you know, or your bris, if you could remember it, or your child's bris, which you do remember. And Andy, thank you for letting me uh, participate by Zoom in your grandchild's bris. Uh, I will not lightly get that, that image out of my head. <laughs> um, Kennedy says... As a practical matter, you know, you're missing out on something. So there is a kind of coercion and it's not easy to stand up and stand out. How's that going to work? You know, um, at the mid- in the middle of the invocation, you, you walk away, you, you walk off the, um, out of the bleachers and then you come back. Okay. And the government is actually, it's a religious ceremony as such. And the government is picking the religious person and actually telling the religious person what to say and not say. And he's saying, and he's saying oh my God, this is a huge problem. Uh, and you know, this I'm is, with this, him. there's a fair amount in this case that uh, of commonality between Lee versus Weissman here. It's not identical, but correct. You know, but you say okay. So hang on, well, I'm actually saying here are three cases mm-hmm. where you know it doesn't look good for for Coach K, not right. um, um, you know uh, the Coach Kennedy here, Engel and Abington, and now Lee versus Weissman is not even in the classroom. Okay, and I'll mention a fourth, which is the Santa Fe case, which was actually about a football game, public school football game. And in, in Santa Fe, the court 6-3 says you can't have a system in which the student body as such votes on who's going to give the prayer. And, and it's organized, in effect, by the school. Someone's going to give a prayer. You're going to get to vote on, on who gives the prayer. Oh, my God. That's, 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 again, you're a religious minority and now you have to stand up and stand out and they've, they've, they've really politicized religion in all sorts of ways. And, and so the court is specially sensitive in the school case. And I gave you four different cases. Abington, an angle in the classroom, Lee versus Weissman in the bleachers. Just, you know, often commencements you know, happen on the football field, or at least it did you know, when I graduated. It was actually you know, on the football field because that's where the bleachers are. And the Santa Fe case, which was actually about a football game prayer organized through this, uh, the school and its student body with a kind of electing who's going to give the prayer. Oh. So that's the, uh, those cases all uh, are hard cases against Coach, what Coach Kennedy is doing. Now, I'm going to give you some things on the other side, but because this is a close and an interesting case in certain respects. I think at the end of the day, well, I keep going back and forth. Um, I may very well be with the dissenters in the case, the liberals in the case, but not quite for every reason that they give. You know, the, just a couple of facts uh, that have to do with these cases, especially Lee versus Weissman. You know, you mentioned that that has to do with graduation and it's a special event and everyone wants to be there. So, Football games to begin with are special events, but one of the three games in question here was the homecoming game. So yes, you know, and who wants to miss that? Right, exactly. Yes. So, so yeah, that, and, and 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 since we're you know we we began last week talking about what it's like to be a minority kid in high school. So since I'm in the confessional mode, I didn't go to prom. Okay. Um, I didn't have a date for the prom. I was too afraid to ask someone. I was a total little wimp. But, but, you know, how many movies have there been about proms or about, you know, high school football games? I mean, these are really important cultural um, moments in, in one's upbringing. And, uh, you know, and the coach, you know, made a big deal about the fact that he was going to continue to do this. He, he uh, you know, he called press conferences. He had Facebook, you know, postings to that effect. And he even, and he, although when it came right down to it, in the, the three, three weekends, the three games 
that actually were in question here. There were many, many more games. The ones that precipitated his actual being uh, being fired by the, right. the, the, the school district. Because what happened was he engaged in various practices for a long time. And then the, then the, the school said, don't do this anymore. And, and here are the reasons. Um, and then following him receiving that notice, he then there were then three more games where he engaged in some of the practices. But he did it a little differently uh, and the circumstances were a little different in those games than right. they had been He said, previously. oh, I'm not doing this, I'm doing that, you but, know, and, 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 but, I'm, and he, he, he thought he was coming right up to the line, but not I think, over it. He, he wasn't offsides. And I think he was also trying to fake out the school a little bit because he said in the correspondence that went back and forth between him and his lawyer, he, in response to the, um, the school district informing him of what he, what he, should, what he should do, he said, well... Um, what I want you to do is to, I want you to promise that you will not interfere with students joining me in prayer. So it was clearly, you know, that the implication is that it was his intention to have students join him in prayer. Well, and, you know, this is called, you know, putting the backfield in motion or something like that, you know, uh, so that the defense doesn't quite know exactly what you're up to or, or if you're on the defensive side, stunting in, in, in certain ways. So, so, oh, maybe he's a, an okay coach after all. He understands actually misdirection and a trap play and all the rest. Um, okay. Now, but I think this goes into, into one of the questions that you raised earlier, which is this notion of, you know, to what extent does his previous conduct way on what you know what happens later now you gave oh, it's going to be huge and that's in my view one of the bigger differences between justice sotomayor's dissent and she was a former district judge and their reasons actually she's looking at the co- course of conduct of a, of a litigant and the majority sees it differently they're they're always on the lookout for discrimination against religious folk these days so so they're different narrative frames and lots of complexity uh, to go but let me just i began by saying here are four cases that look bad for the coach engel and Abington, which we talked about last week, um, and I've added Lee versus Weissman and the Santa Fe case. Okay, now here's on the other side, just so you see some of the complexities. And some of these are not school cases, do you see? But we allow, so here's a complexity. He is the government. He the man, he the coach. Okay, he represents, you know, the course of power of the state and all the rest, and who doesn't want to be on coach's good side on the team? But he's also a person, a human being, who, who has actually a, a faith and, is, and has rights against the government. Now, uh, just to pick something that might seem easy, but it's kind of, kind of complicated. Let's, this is a small town. This is small town America, I think. And, and if it's not, let's just imagine that it is. I, I think it actually is a fairly small town uh, where this arose, but I could be wrong about that. But... For the hypothetical, I think it's... It's Bremerton, which I think is in Washington. Yeah, the population is 37,000. Okay, here's the point. Let's imagine that everyone in town knows that Coach Kennedy is a deeply religious person, a person of faith, and he teaches Sunday school. And a quarter of... Um, the, the school actually are fellow congregants of, of him at that Sunday school. Um, surely he's allowed to teach Sunday school and be a coach. And there are con- coercion concerns if, you know, some, some kid might actually think, gee, if I want to stay, you know, on coach's good side, you know, I, I should go to his church or something like that. You could imagine a student. But, but he has to be allowed to at least express his faith, you know, in Sunday school. Um, on Sunday. Okay, now how about a slightly different scenario? We're still far from the 50-yard line, and we're not doing this on uh, right after the game. The weekend before each game, the day before each game, he takes out a permit to have a prayer event, praying for the team and the town at the local city park. And, and people are welcome to join him in principle, but they're not obliged. But, oh, you're, you're the wide receiver on the team. You, you want to stay in good with coach. And then you, maybe you show up at, at that event. But there are going to be coercion concerns about this, you see. So now we're seeing some of the, the complexities here. Here's 
what offend some people. So one thing is he was doing stuff early on that I think were pretty clearly establishment clause violations, these public vocal prayers inviting people on uh, on his team to participate and and they would have to either join or not stand up or stand out and everyone could hear what they were praying or not praying and that's close to Abington and Engel and that's what we were concerned about is it totally different you see when he says okay I've stopped doing that mine is a quiet prayer maybe even an altogether silent one None of the people around me is actually saying anything, and so we can't know what's in their heads. Oh, and at the end, no member of my team is even allowed to be around me, and some of the people who are joining me are actually people from the other team, and that's voluntary, that's not coercive. Couple of points. One, you might say, gee, if, if he'd started that way and that's all he had ever did, it would be one thing, but we're going to treat him much more skeptically because he was guilty of tax evasion six different times before, so, oh, we're going to audit him really closely and he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. And that's, that's how we think about things sometimes. We especially think about that when the government has misbehaved several times. As a matter of remedy, we sometimes force the government to actually stay far from the constitutional line once they've encroached the line several times. We have prophylactic regimes. You could think about Miranda that way. Or to use a football metaphor, if you're guilty of encroachment offside six times in a row, we're going to make you line up five yards from the scrimmage line rather than on the line or something. And that's how we think about it when it comes often to government misconduct. It's complicated because he also has rights against the government. And when you actually push him, you know, very far away from the line, are you violating his own free speech, free exercise uh, rights as an individual? Now, now, you say, here's partly also what what offends some people. And this is where I don't quite agree. And and the dissent makes some of these points, and I think they're, they're powerful, made by Justice Sotomayor. Here's, though... What offends many people, and it doesn't quite offend me, because I'm not French. They don't like any public displays of religion, any more than they like public displays of affection or something. They think it's, you know, sex should be you know, behind closed doors in private. You're not allowed to, to do it on Main Street at high noon or in City Park. Okay, and they think religion should be in its own private space. You know, why doesn't he pray? You know, in his own house or in a closet or only on Sunday at church or something like that. But and that's how the French think about things. That's the principle of laicity. They are nervous about openly religious people in public spaces. But I just want to remind folks in America, because I mentioned Abington and Engel and Santa Fe and Lee versus Weissman, here are, as it were, precedents on the other side. Presidents of the United States get up there and say, and the Constitution doesn't say this. They choose to say it, so help me God. And the rest of us are watching. Maybe we're not participating in a prayer event as such, but we're watching a prayer event. Oh, and sometimes we actually are participating in prayer event because they open Congress with congressional, uh, with, with chaplains' prayers, and they open the Supreme Court with God save this honorable court, Supreme Court sessions, and presidents swear their oaths of office on Bibles, and the Constitution doesn't say any of that. So we Americans have more public expressions of religiosity by public employees, public servants in public spaces. Then the friend, and some people just, they think he shouldn't be there on the 50-yard line in any event, you know, in, in front of us all. Why is he doing Even if there was no one on um, his team um, around him, even if it was totally silent and private and so not very much coercion or standing up or standing out, and the only people that joined him were people on the other team. This is another way of putting it. A fine distinction between asking others to be part of his prayer ceremony, to participate in a religious ceremony, versus forcing others, as it were, even to observe a religious ceremony, to observe others praying in public. And And that offends I think many people who would have been tempted to be on the dissent, and I'm being honest with my uh, audience, to me, 
that's not the problem in a society of many faiths and people with, of no faith. We have to be somewhat tolerant of each other. And I'm, I'm open to the idea that I'm going to see someone who has, you know, weird hair in public. Um, or, you know, weird piercings, or weird tattoos, or, you know, weird, to my way of thinking, religious expression, and, and I think I need to kind of get over that. They, they should be allowed to, at least to a certain extent, be religious, even in public, if there's no coercion at all. And, and they change the hypothetical is, in various ways. Right. I mean, I think in this case, you know, that would be satisfied by your... Uh, you know, scenario where he would have a, a public, you know, revival meeting or whatever it is, you know, uh, on the, you know, in the public park with a permit, you know, on a weekly basis, but not on, not on the school grounds. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think that uh, Justice Sotomayor takes this concern seriously in the dissent. Uh, let me read you a paragraph. Uh, it's a long paragraph, but she addresses some of these things. Mm-hmm. She says, First of all, she, she precedes it by talking about what happened earlier. She says, Kennedy told the district that he began his prayers alone and that players followed each other over time until a majority of the team joined him, an evolution showing coercive pressure at work. Okay, so now she goes on. Kennedy does not defend his longstanding practice of leading the team in prayer out loud on the field as they kneeled around him. Instead, he responds and the court accepts that his highly visible and demonstrative prayer at the last three games before his suspension, these are are the games where he prayed alone, okay, Uh, or with um, either alone or with members of the other team only. Um, Did, uh, okay, his highly visible and demonstrative prayer the last three games before his suspension did not violate the establishment clause. She says it doesn't, okay, because these prayers were quiet and thus private. This court's precedents, however, do not permit isolating government actions from their context in determining whether they violate the Establishment Clause. To the contrary, this court has repeatedly said that Establishment Clause inquiries are fact-specific and require careful consideration of the origins and practical reality of the specific practice at issue, and she cites Lee in that case. Uh, also mm-hmm. in Lee six, versus Weissman. Right. In Santa Fe, the court specifically addressed how to determine... Santa Fe was the, the other uh, t- uh, football case. Right. Football prayer case. How to determine whether the implementation of a new policy regarding prayers at football games, quote, insulates the continu- continuation of such prayers from constitutional scrutiny, unquote. The court held that, quote, inquiry into this question not only can but must include an examination of the circumstances surrounding the change in policy, the long-established tradition before the change, and the unique circumstances of the school in question. Unquote. This court's precedent thus does not permit treating Kennedy's new prayer practice as occurring on a blank slate any more than those in the district's school community would have experienced Kennedy's changed practice to the degree there was one, as erasing years of prior actions by Kennedy. They were a clear continuation of a long-established tradition of sanctioning school official involvement in school prayers. Students at the three games following Kennedy's changed practice witnessed Kennedy kneeling at the same time and place where he had led them in prayer for years. They witnessed their peers from opposing teams joining Kennedy, just as they had when Kennedy was leading joint team prayers. They went, and he goes on to, she goes on to say how it's essentially the same thing. And she says that, that the students from his school did not join Kennedy in these last three specific prayers, did not make those events compliant with the establishment clause. The coercion to do so was evident. Kennedy mm-hmm. himself apparently anticipated that his continued prayer practice would draw student participation. This is the thing I said earlier, how he demanded that they not interfere with students joining him in the future. So there, I think, is the, is the, is the reasoning um, that goes along and, and, with and a this lot is of what, what you said. Yeah, and this is what this podcast is giving you. If that's so, Andy, the area of disagreement between the majority and the dissent is actually rather small. Because Justice Sotomayor is saying, actually, if it weren't for all of this previous stuff, it might be okay what he did. 
It's all that other history which she thinks the precedents require attention to. And she's a former district judge, and, and district judges pay attention to what litigants did before. And, and, and I think she makes some good arguments there, some very you know, cogent arguments there. It's slightly complicated because when you remember it's not just the government misbehaving you know, uh, every time, you know, because um, he is the government, yes, but he's also an individual with rights against the government, and that's why you have to be uh, worried about remedy that basically pushes him way past you know, what the constitutional line might be in isolation. That's, that's the deep jurisprudential kind of issue here is because he, vi- in effect, he did violate the Establishment Clause, you know, four times before, do we actually accord him less of a free exercise benefit of the doubt than we otherwise might? And I think um, there's some and, 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 and that's a, an interesting and nice question. Oh, do you see how it's connected to affirmative action? Because it is. Because here's what the majority said. The way to get beyond, what conservatives say, yeah, there's been a lot of racism in a lot of American history. We've got to get over it. We stop doing that now. And the way to get beyond race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. No affirmative action. What does Justice Sotomayor think? History didn't start yesterday. So because there were actually violations in the past, actually we, we might need to have you know, a certain special efforts to, to, to try to undo the lingering effects of all that. That's what she says very powerfully in the Shooty case. It's a case from many years ago uh, uh, about Michigan, which where the, the voters of Michigan said, we don't want to do any affirmative action above and beyond what we're actually obliged to. And our friend Owen Fiss actually has a new piece out. It's in the same issue as Vic's and my article on independent state legislatures. It's the new issue of the Supreme Court Review. It's called Scalia's Slip by Owen Fiss. That's all about just Sotomayor's dissent in that case. So, so Justice Sotomayor says history is really relevant here, just as I think she um, has said and will say it's very relevant in the affirmative action context. Now, some of our listeners might say, might be listening to this and saying, well, why aren't you bringing up the fact that he didn't supervise the students, which his job requires him to do? Why aren't you bringing up the fact that he, that, that 500 people stormed the, the field, um, okay, which they so weren't allowed to just, do. Let me, let's just take them one at a time. Okay, so here's what the majority says. And, but what I'm already saying is this case is rather fact-specific. The media wants to hype it big time because it's culture war stuff and the media wants to sell newspapers. The area of disagreement may be actually, as I say, more modest and in part a question of um, how much you look at this, um, these last three games in isolation versus in the context of a, a much longer experience with this coach. So first, how do you deal with the fact that his contract says he's supposed to actually pay attention to the team and he's you know, off doing this other thing? And what I think the majority says is, look, if he... If he took five minutes after each game and called his um, dad who was in the hospital just to check in on him or, you know, uh, called his spouse or something just to, to tell his spouse who won the game or something. This was a de minimis interruption in his basic responsibilities. And religion here is being treated worse than if he just had to take a pee or, or I wanted to, to call even a stockbroker for that matter. Yeah, I, don't, um, I don't buy that at all because... I'm just we, telling you what the majority says right. that they... Because they... they See, you see, the world looks different to them. They see religion being discriminated against in all sorts of, of ways. And they have a history, too, because, you know, they think, for, I, I think, they think Wallace versus Jaffrey probably went too far in moments of, of silence. And my prediction is, ladies and gentlemen, oh, Wallace versus Jaffrey is a case ripe for reversal. That's, you know, one of my bets going forward. We'll, it's a prediction. We'll see how well it ages. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I don't think that, you're, that I agree with you in terms of the, the way the majority characterizes that. I think they say that he can be fired for that, possibly. We're just not going to rule on that. We're just talking oh, about... Well, the, the second point, you made two points. They say, well, what about the fact that he's actually kind of violating policy and all sorts of people are charging the field and that's going to be very disruptive and all the rest. And what they say is, oh, he might be punishable for that. And Justice Sotomayor in dissent says the majority admits that he could be punishable for that, but that's not what he was fired for. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, don't you see how relevant that is to Justice Breyer's dissent in Carson where he said... 
well, these main schools actually discriminate against LGBT and discriminate on the basis of religion. And I'm saying, yes, and that could be ground for denying them a voucher, but that's not why they were denied a voucher. They were denied a voucher merely for being religious as such. If they had simply had a prayer and nothing else, they would have still been ineligible for the voucher, and that goes too far. But you could redesign your voucher policy and say the only schools that are eligible for vouchers are schools that are open to all comers, LGBT or not, whatever. So here, too, I think the majority says, oh, you could fire him for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, but not basically for praying as distinct from calling a stockbroker. Right. And, and or by his, the way, is his, his, his father in the hospital. Uh, yeah. And by the way, that business about, you know, call, if he had a habit of of every game calling his father, you know, after the game and he's not doing he's not the the school could say to him legitimately, your job is to supervise the students. Don't call your father for another 15 minutes after the game. And if he continued to call his father, they could fire him um, and, th- and yes. there'd be nothing wrong with that. And, or it could be that none of us would here. be... Well, hold on. Right. But they, they did put him on notice here that he shouldn't do that. Now, the problem is that, that when they, they told him afterwards why they were... They, said, they could have just said, we're firing you because you, you didn't supervise, and we told you you had to supervise. But then they also said, and we're firing you for, for this other they, reason. If they would have just they shut They gave up about one it. reason too many. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I once declined an invitation to, to go to a social event. I said, well, I can't do it. Actually, I have this thing. And actually, even if I didn't, I had this other you know, secondary thing. And, and this was actually a, an invitation by my, my mentor, Guido Calabresi. And he said, Akil, of course I believe you, but just I'm giving you just a little bit of good social advice. Never give two excuses. One always suffices, you know, and, and, and more than one is a mistake. And, oh, Guido is a very wise man. Let's imagine, you know, he, he called his father, and, and that was, like, in the community, like, the tradition, and they knew that he did that after every episode. What I'm saying is very few people would say, how outrageous, he's calling his father to celebrate or something like that. But genuinely, I do think it's true. I don't think the majority is hallucinating that there are many people who just take offense at someone so visibly and publicly being religious. It offends their sensibility. I think there was a piece in the New York Times that nicely, by Pamela Paul, I think it may be her name, that nicely sort of captures that very French sensibility. And I'm just trying to be, you know, this is an interesting and close and complex case. And as I said, I think there's less disagreement maybe between the majority and the dissent than you might think. But some people honestly are just offended by public displays of religion. And I'm saying that's a French sensibility. It's not quite America, or at least today, because the cases involve not just Engel and Abington and Santa Fe and uh, Lee versus Weissman, but they also involve what the court has not done, which are also precedents, which is hold unconstitutional the pledge, even though it says under God, and hold unconstitutional in God we trust, and hold unconstitutional God save this honorable court, which happens in the Supreme Court itself, you know, uh, every session, and hold unconstitutional presidents saying, so help me God, and choosing to swear on a Bible, and infusing that event with all sorts of religious ceremonies and, and, and symbols, or legislative chaplains in Congress and in, in state legislatures. So, And the easiest explanation for all of that, if you're on Justice Sotomayor's side, is those don't involve schools. We're especially strict about schools. So going forward then, how has this case, because you said it's very fact-specific, but still all cases have facts associated with them, um, how has this case changed the law? Has it overruled any of those cases? Has it weakened them? What's different going forward about the law on such things than it was before this case? I'm not sure that this one moves things a, a lot. It, it could make people nervous in the following way. And I'm now speaking to some of my friends at, say, um, strict scrutiny, who are very worried about Obergefell. And here's one of the things I think that people like my friends on strict scrutiny are worried about. The, what's her name, Kim Davis scenario? Yep. She's, mm-hmm. um, okay. The Kentucky so person, she, the clerk? 
Yes. So mm-hmm. she's the government official, but she's also an individual who has rights against the government, you see. And if she says, oh, I don't want to give you the marriage license, you see, because that offends my religious sensibility and you're forcing me to do something against my religion. They're worried that that is going to be the thin edge of a wedge to begin to undermine Obergefell. Though I'm, I have no sympathy for Kim Davis in that scenario. If you can't do your job, the wedding license is not I, Kim Davis, approve of this wedding. It's I, the state of Kentucky or Ohio or California, whatever, certify this thing. And, and if you can't do it, then you need to get another job. Here's what I'll let you do. If there's someone else in your office who is always at the ready, you know, I think if, it's, if there's no disrespect at all, if in one nanosecond, when the same-sex couple comes up and asks for their license, you step aside and have another clerk tend to them, and no one is demeaned in any way, fine. We've accommodated your views, and no one has been harmed. That sounds um, pretty separate but equal to me. A separate but equal? Yeah, because you're stigmatizing them by saying, you're, 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 here, go on, you go on the gay line. You know, um, well, that's why I said they, I'm hoping that they don't even know that. It's just she steps aside and someone, you know, if she had to go to the, the bathroom or something so like that. So she'd have to do it secretly is what you're saying. Oh, I don't. I, if there was any, yes, disrespect or demeaning, that would be bad. Yes, she's not allowed to do that. So, um, so, they so, are, they're equal to citizens. Um, but, but if we could do it without any inconvenience or demeaning to them, fine. I'll accommodate you. Otherwise, you're in the wrong line of work, with all due respect, Ms. Davis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see how you could possibly do that, how you could possibly make that accommodation, because, you know, it, it, you'd have to keep it a secret, and you wouldn't be able to keep She's going to keep it a secret? You know, she's a big mouth. She wants it, she wants it known. That she's, ah, she's, well, so this coach case. So that, that's what. So, um, so you asked me, you know, what uh, broader right. significance so, that there might be. I'm trying to th- think about. Um, and how does this, this coach court, case impact on that? M- m- this court might be have, uh, I would say, too much sympathy for um, Ms. Davis because my view is in that situation, it's just not about you in any way, shape, or form. You are a pure ministerial officer of the state, and, and you're not doing anything the state is, and you're just the stamp. I mean, so I'm not quite sure how this case reflects on that at all, because this, you're talking about someone who has an affirmative duty as a result of their job to, to perform a function that they don't want to perform. I'm talking about the Here, deep conceptual issue, Andy. You're asking me if this means right. anything beyond this case. I'm saying the deep, one of the deep jurisprudential issues is the complexity of someone who is an, one and the same time an agent of the state and also has is an individual with uh, religious rights against the state. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's okay. That's, so that's the, so, yeah, right. That, I understand. Yeah, yeah. The thing and, that you said and, about and, rights and against the state and rights. defiant, you know, of of government policies in certain ways, and so it's Kim Davis. You see, so I'm I'm seeing connections between, mm. you know, um, and, and and my friends on strict scrutiny are worried about the Kim Davis problem, and I, in the end, think. We've already asked and answered the Kim Davis thing, and we're not going back because we answered it correctly. Kim Davis has to actually certify the same-sex marriages, and if she can't, she must go. Okay, so you so you think that uh, people might worry about it, but in the end, this case doesn't really make new law that would impact on that. I would hope not, because she's just got a clear ministerial duty, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it's just not about her in any way, shape, or as I said— you would be more strict. I would be willing to accommodate her just to the extent of allowing her to um, step aside um, as long as there was no stigma involved to the, the license applicants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe if she didn't have a, a, you know, an actual contact with the people. In other words, if she was just somebody that it was in a back office and had to stamp yeah. it, then someone else yeah. could stamp it and no one would ever know. You know that, right. That, that, that and, and, and now you see how these fine distinctions sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, matter. You know, um, is it a silent prayer or not? Who's in the circle? Are they participating in a prayer or merely observing a prayer? The way in which the pledge is actually, arguably, even though it says under God, different than the New York Regents prayer. Wow. This that, is a complicated area of law. Now, our, our audience might, you know, wonder why I'm, I'm looking at this and, one reason is because one of the uh, one of the things that we've seen over Akil's career is um, how 
the path of the law has sometimes tracked uh, opinions that he's expressed early on. Um, so uh, last week we talked about the Carson case, and um, one thing that we discussed briefly is how the Carson case is, is part of a line of cases that goes back about 25 years um, uh, with, with the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, what were some of the early cases in this line? Uh, well, a line of cases that gradually overruled certain other cases. It was done in a series of overrulings rather than all at once, the way Dobbs just in, in one sweeping motion overruled Roe and a Planned Parenthood visits Casey. In this area, I think one early important case is called Mitchell versus Helms. It's 1999-2000, something like that. I, th I think it was argued in 1999 and, and decided in 2000. And it overrules a couple of cases that, whose reigning idea was separation and not equality. And it put us on, and then there were other cases that got overruled as well, um, and it put us on a path that eventually led to Carson. And I think, Andy, what we were going to do is play for our audience some clips of a C-SPAN event that I did in uh, 1999. It was a moot court oral argument all about Mitchell versus Helms. And our audience can listen to the clips, and I'm hoping actually some of them might even want to see the, the C-SPAN episode. We'll, we'll put the, the link up just because back then I had black hair. Yes. <laughs> and, but and quite a nice um, our, uh, Thank you very much. But our audience would see, and I'm jousting with very, very, and interacting with very, very distinguished academics who are the lawyers in this case, Erwin Chemerinsky and Susanna Sherry, very distinguished law professors. And it's an early case that's going to eventually, in my view, um, requires to think about vouchers. So in our next episode, we will play for you some of these clips. In addition to being lots of fun to hear Justice Amar joust with these eminent scholars and advocates, we'll be making some points that will tie together a lot of themes we've been either sounding or alluding to over the past weeks as we've gone over the Supreme Court cases. In short, it'll help you make sense of where we are and where we're going. And you'll hear me, you know, as a justice and playing the role of a justice in this moot court saying, well, maybe we should overrule that case. And maybe we should overrule this other case because they're wrong. They're egregiously wrong. And at the end of the day, you have to get the Constitution right, even if that means you have to toss precedence overboard. Our audience will see, because this is, goes back to prediction and prescription, uh, in a whole bunch of ways, I've been you know, betting on certain outcomes, saying this is the path that the law will take and should take, because at the end of the day, we have to get straight with the Constitution, even if that means rethinking some of the precedents. That's always been my view. So we're going to play some of these clips for you, and you'll see why lawyers all over this country are glad that Professor Moore never became a judge. <laughs> okay. Okay.